Acts chapter 9, we're going to key off on one verse, 9.22, but I want to back up just a little bit so we get some context. This is the aftermath of Paul's conversion and how he immediately goes about preaching Jesus after he comes to see the risen Christ. So it's Acts 9. We're going to start with the second part of verse 19, and here's what it says. Now, for several days, he, meaning Saul, was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed, and they were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, and who has come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. In 1976, Alex Haley released his book, Roots, which was a historical fiction novel of his purported uh, ancestor, Kunta Kinte, who was supposedly kidnapped from Africa and then brought to America in slavery. It traces his experience as a slave and then those of the lives of his descendants. Now, the book the next year, in 1977, was made into a miniseries that played on ABC, there were eight episodes that uh, um, debuted on eight consecutive nights, and it was watched by 140 million people, one half of the population of America at the time. Now, not only was the series popular, but it also sparked a desire in many to trace back their own roots and ancestry. Now, today, that's a lot easier than ever with companies like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. With both of them, you simply provide a sample of your saliva, you send it in, they analyze your DNA, and by matching your DNA against those of others in the data bank, they're able to tell where your ancestors came from and who you are related to. Now, lots of people are interested in discovering who their ancestors were, but few are as intense in their quest as those Jews who claim to be descendants of King David. Long before genetic testing became possible, certain Jewish families have insisted that they are from the line of Israel's second king. Back in 2014, Nadine Epstein wrote an article for Moment magazine. It's entitled, King David's Genes. She stated that uh, many who claim descent from David trace their lineage through Rabbi Sh uh, Shlomo Itzhaki, which, who, who is better known as Rashi. He's a great biblical commentator born in 1040 in the French city of Troyes. And uh, Rashi claimed to be from the line of David. Arthur Mer uh, Merton, uh, he grew up in, uh, during the Depression in the Bronx. As a member of the Charlap family, he claims descent from King David by way of Rabbi Hezekiah, the last uh, exilarch um, from Portugal. He wrote a book about it entitled The Book of Destiny, uh, Tolat Charbet. Well, as an engineer by profession, uh, Menton said that researching his family history has been the most exciting thing and satisfying thing he's ever done. He said, I've gone all over the world meeting relatives and I've gathered uh, up fa uh, 20 family trees. He said they didn't know each other, but they mirrored each other in remarkable ways, all of them having the uh, Davidic connection. Now, one of these trees hangs in the library of the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and he found letters that speak of uh, the family's King David lineage, and his nephew uncovered a medieval document describing a coat of arms of the Ibn Yadav family, which is related to the Charlebs, and uh, in Spain and Portugal. It has on it the Lion of Judah, which symbolizes David's throne, it, as well as uh, Eagle, which stands for courage, a star of David behind the Ten Commandments, and above it, a crown representing the royal house. Now, some are skeptical, arguing that even if you could develop 
a genetic test, you can't be certain that these people are actually related to David. I mean, it's not like David sent in a saliva sample. But Susan Roth, in searching for the Davidic families, she's enthusiastic. She says, if we could find a DNA test that, sh uh, that shows that all the descendants share the same DNA, that would be unbelievable. Roth goes on to say this. She would like to see the establishment, reestablishment of the King David dynasty. That's important, she says, because, quote, uh, the world keeps saying that Israel is only 63 years old, and that's not true. There are th uh, was a king 3,000 years ago who pulled together 12 tribes and started a dynasty. There were always Jews in Israel, but they were not always a nation because some went into exile. And they came back once and rebuilt the temple, and then the Romans came, and no one wants to admit this. They say, prove it. Well, Roth envisions a royal house of David, which would take place alongside of the current government in Israel. Just like the, uh, in England you have a queen who's a figurehead, you could have a king of Israel uh, who's a figurehead, she said, a king who would be taken seriously and sign, uh, signify that the Jews have been in Israel for 3,000 years. The Knesset could run the country, but there would be a royal house that would bring legitimacy. The royal house of David could be a light unto the nation. It would be, uh, bring about peace and harmony and everything the world is waiting for because this world is such a terrible place right now. Now, for Orthodox Jews, the need to identify who is and isn't from the house of David is vitally important. Because the scripture tells us that the Messiah that they are waiting for will come from the line of David. Now, as a Christian, I have to tell you, the intense desire on the part of some Jews to recover the royal line of David is interesting to me, but it's certainly misguided. For even if there's 10,000 people today who could legitimately show they come from that royal line, I am absolutely certain that not one of them belongs to David's line as the promised Messiah. For the Messiah that the Jews are looking for has already come and gone and will come again. For Jesus of Nazareth was and is the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. Now that passage that I just read ended with the words, But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Well, last week we showed how Jesus proved himself to be the Messiah by filling the roles of a prophet and priest. Today we want to consider how Jesus also will fill the role of being a king, uh, both in his life at that time and in the age to come. And then we want to answer some of the Jewish objections to the, uh, that claim. So why don't we pray and get in the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us as we look at this. Um, the unity of the scripture in proclaiming your son to be the king of Israel is all over. So we, Father, we pray that you'd grace us uh, with your spirit's understanding so that we can uh, know the word of God better today. So bless us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what's at stake in all of this? I mean, is it just arguments over, oh, you know, this, that, the other? No. You have to understand, and I appreciate the Jewish uh, apologists who understand that what's at stake is heaven and hell on this issue. Think about it. If the Jews are right and Jesus is not the Messiah, but he claimed not only to be the Messiah, but the Son of God, then Jesus was a blasphemer, and we are all idolaters by worshiping a man as God. On the other hand, if the Jews are wrong and Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, that means that for the last hundred generations, they've been living and dying and perishing in unbelief. Well, how should we outline the sermon today? Well, the first thing I want to do is consider the Old Testament prophecies that speak of this coming king of Israel. So the Old Testament prophecies. Secondly, we want to look at the New Testament claims that Jesus is indeed this promised king. And then finally, I want to consider some of the objections that the Jewish apologists raise, and then answer them. So there are Old Testament prophecies. By the way, do you know where the first prophecy is of the Messiah, the coming Messiah? 
Hmm. It's actually Genesis chapter 3. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned, God confronted them and then pronounced judgment on both of them and on the serpent. When he addressed the serpent, he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed, meaning descendant, and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Someday the seed of the woman, one of her descendants, would be bruised by the serpent. That happened when Jesus was crucified. But that same descendant would bruise or crush the head of the serpent. Now granted, this is a rather opaque and cryptic prophecy, but it's about more than just snakes and people. It speaks of the Messiah defeating Satan, and implied in that is the restoration of paradise lost. First John 3.8 says this, The one who practices sin is of the devil, and the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the work of the devil. At the time of this first prophecy, this promised seed of the woman could have been any of Eve's descendants. But as you go along in the story in Genesis, you see that it's narrowed down to one family, the family of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham saying, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Later on when Abraham offered up his son Isaac to the Lord, God stopped him at the last moment and provided a substitute sacrifice, a ram. He then said to Abraham this, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, have not withhold your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply you, uh, uh, multiply your seed as the stars in the heaven and the sands which are on the seashore. And in your seed, or your seed will possess uh, the gates of their enemy, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Genesis 22, 16 to 18. Well, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. How many sons did he have, by the way? The answer is six. He had one by Sarah, Isaac. He had another by Hagar, Ishmael. And then he had four by uh, Keturah. But the one who was the son of the promise was Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. It was not the older who was chosen as the child of promise, but Jacob, the younger. And what of Jacob? He had 12 sons. Which one was the Messiah to come through? Reuben, the oldest? No. Remember, he forfeited his position because he slept with one of his father's wives. Was it through Joseph, Jacob's favorite son? No. The promised seed would come through Judah. At the end of his life, Jacob made prophecies concerning all of his sons, and he said this about Judah. He said, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him will belong the obedience of the people. Genesis 49, 8-10. Here we learn that this promised Messiah would be a ruler to whom all the nations would someday give obedience. Where's the next prophecy about this coming king? Well, it's found in Numbers chapter 24. You know the story. The story of Balaam and Balak. King Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel for him. You remember God rebuked the prophet through a donkey who started... By the way, you ever think about that story? You know, this is one of those stories that say, well, this is how we know that the Bible isn't true. It's a fable of talking donkeys. 
Did you know there wasn't that many years ago, several decades ago, they found a little inscription in Jordan that referred to Balaam, the son of Beor, the seer. He was a real person. But what I find humorous about it is he gets into an argument with this donkey. <laughs> he says, and the donkey says to him, have I ever acted like this before? He says, well, no, but come on, it's getting a little crazy. But you remember, he went and was supposed to curse him. That's what he was hired for. But he ended up blessing him. And one of the blessings, he said this, he said, How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like the valleys that stretch out, like a garden beside the rivers, like aloes planted by the uh, Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Waters will flow from his bucket, and his seed, meaning his descendant, will be like many waters, and his king will be higher than Gog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God will bring him out of Egypt. By the way, that's why Matthew quotes that verse, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Now speaking of the same king, Balaam said this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir and its enemies will also be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion, and will destroy the remnant from the city. Now God could have chosen anyone from the tribe of Jacob. But you know who he chose? He chose a young shepherd boy named David. And then when David grew up, he wanted to build a temple for the Lord. But God sent the prophet Nathan to tell him no. He said, you're not going to build a house for me. Rather, I'm going to build a house, meaning a dynasty, for you. And then he said this, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you and he will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, that prophecy finds a partial near-term fulfillment when Solomon, David's son, built the temple. But both Jews and Christians agree that it looks beyond Solomon to David's greater son, the Messiah. Of course, you know there's a number of other passages who talk about a coming king. Isaiah 9, 6-7 says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Power, uh, Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from now on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, the Jewish apologists say that, well, that's just a reference to King Hezekiah in that day. But here's the problem King Hezekiah can't be called Mighty God and Eternal Father. And plus, this one is going to reign over David's throne and his kingdom forever. Jeremiah 23, 5 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Daniel, you remember he had that vision about one he called the Son of Man who was coming before the Ancient of Days, God the Father. It says, And it, to him it was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the Old Testament prophets spoke of a descendant of David who would come, set up a righteous kingdom 
over which he would rule forever. Well, that's the Old Testament prophecies. What's the New Testament claim? Well, simply this, that Jesus of Nazareth is that promised son of David who would sit on his throne to rule over Israel. You remember when the angel Gabriel came to speak to Mary to announce that though she was a virgin, she was going to have a child? He said this, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Luke 1, 30-33. The Magi, when they came from the east, what did they ask? They said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and they have come to worship him. By the way, that we saw a star in the east probably goes back to that reference with Balaam. I saw a star that would rise. Well, when Herod heard that the Magi were looking for the king of Israel, he sent uh, soldiers to slay all the babies of Bethlehem. You know, political leaders in every age are threatened by Jesus. You know, Xi Jinping, the leader of China, a number of years ago they put up posters all over China that said, Jesus can't help you, only P.B. Uh, uh, can. You can see that it's a religious challenge, isn't it? Well, Jesus didn't often refer to himself as the king of the Jews. He usually referred to himself as the son of man. But when others called him the king of the Jews, he didn't correct them or deny it. And uh, when it was asked specifically if he was the king of the Jews, he said that he was. Remember when Nathanael first encountered Jesus? Jesus startled him by saying, you know what, I saw you before, you, you know, before I came to you, when he was reading under the tree, right? And it, it says, Nathanael answered, said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered, said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than this. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not the son of God, and I'm not the king of Israel. I'm just a great moral teacher and an example to follow. When Jesus was on trial, the religious leaders tried to nail Jesus with a trumped-up political charge, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. By the way, that wasn't true. And saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, it is as you say. After Pilate's soldiers made a crown of thorns and placed it on Jesus' head, they slapped and beat Jesus, bowing in front of him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then Pilate brought out Jesus before the crowd and said, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed them over to be crucified. And when he was hanging on the cross, above his head, they wrote this charge. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And as he was pouring out his life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, his enemies taunted him, saying, He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? I mean, what kind of king is this? A failed one? Most of his followers thought so at the time. But one man, a thief hanging next to him, saw the glory and the shame and said, Lord, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That brings us to our last point, though, the objections and the answers. Now, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. And if the Gospels are to be believed, uh, he did miracles to substantiate those claims. If you remember in response to the charge that he was committing blasphemy by calling himself the Son of God, Jesus asked this, Why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's Son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you don't believe in me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. John 10, 36-38. In other words, if you don't believe what I'm saying, look at the miracles and let them lead you back to the truth of who I am. You know, some of the rabbis in the Talmud do not deny that Jesus performed signs and wonders. They argue that he did it through black magic that he learned when he was in Egypt. Well, what reason then do Jewish apologists give for rejecting Jesus as their Messiah? Jews for Judaism is an anti-missionary organization, and they give five reasons on their website. Here's the first one. They say this, The Messiah must be from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of King David and King Solomon, so therefore Jesus doesn't qualify. I mean, the point, they point out that tribal affiliation came through the Father. So if you have a Jewish man who's from the tribe of Benjamin and his wife is from the tribe of, of Zebulun, all the children are considered to be from Benjamin. Now, according to the genealogy in Matthew, Joseph was from the tribe of Judah. But the Gospels also state that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. Jesus was born, virgin-born. So Jesus wouldn't be considered part of the tribe of Judah. And even if Joseph was his biological father, he still wouldn't qualify. Why? Because the Messiah is, comes from the list of kings found in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 1. But one of the kings in there is King uh, Jeconiah. But if you go back to Jeremiah 22, 30, God places a curse on Jeconiah saying this, Write down this man, Jeconiah, as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Now, Jewish apologists point out also that the genealogies of Matthew and Luke don't even match up. And they're right. How do we respond? Well, first of all, we need to agree that the genealogies of Luke and Matthew don't line up, but that's because they're not the same genealogy. The one in Matthew traces through Joseph. The one in Luke traces through Mary. But both of them trace back to King David. But as for the curse on the line of Jeconiah, which prohibited any of the descendants to succeed on David's throne, that curse doesn't apply to Jesus because it says any of your descendants, and Jesus was not a descendant of Jeconiah. But would that mean that he has no royal blood in him? No. He also descended from David on his mother's side. Because if you go back through the, the genealogy, what you find is past David, in Mary's, it says uh, it was through Nathan. But in Joseph's, it was through Solomon. So biologically, Jesus was a direct descendant of David, though not of Solomon, but through Nathan, uh, who was his mother's ancestor. Legally, he was the adopted son of Joseph, so he was heir to the throne. But the curse of Jeconiah uh, doesn't apply to him because he didn't descend from that line. Because Mary and Joseph were both from the tribe of Judah, Jesus would also be from the tribe of Judah. And that's why we're told in Revelation 5.5 that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So, so much for that objection. 
How about the next one? The Messiah must gather the Jewish people from exile to return them to Israel. But Jesus never accomplished that task. Indeed, 40 years after he came and went, Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans, and then after the Bar Kokhba rebellion in 135 AD, the Jews were scattered throughout the world. Well, it's certainly true that the Messiah will not uh, only redeem, but also regather not only the Jews, but also the descendants of the 12 tribes in the north. Speaking of the Messiah in Isaiah 11, verse 12, it says this, And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed ones of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, some Christians argue that what it's speaking of here is just the present age where people are being brought into the church. But it specifically talks about the people from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jewish apologists are right when they say that Jesus didn't accomplish that. But I'd have a two-word response to that objection. Yet, not yet, but he will when he returns to reign on earth. Third one's related to that. It says he must rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting here because the author of the article I read quoted from Micah 4.1, which speaks of the nations coming to the house of, of uh, the Lord in the last days, taking that to be the temple. But that passage doesn't specifically tell us that the Messiah is the one who will rebuild it. What he should have done was gone to Zechariah 6, 12 to 13, which speaks to the Messiah. Listen to what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is the branch, reference to the Messiah, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it's he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now here's the question. Why do you suppose he didn't cite that verse? Probably because that verse teaches that the Messiah is not only going to be a king, but also a priest. But if you start thinking in line of a priest who offers up sacrifice, that gets pretty close to Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross. So the New Testament does speak of the church as being a, a spiritual temple. And it's possible that that's what Zechariah is envisioning. But I, I think it makes more sense to think in terms of a literal temple that will be standing in Jerusalem in which Jesus will sit on David's throne. You remember what he told his disciples? He said, truly, I say to you, you who followed me in the regeneration, meaning the renewal, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you also will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, 8, or 28. Well, here's the fourth reason they give. The Messiah has to bring in world peace. That's true. According to Isaiah 2.4, he will judge between nations, and he will render decisions for many distant people, and he will hammer, or, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning her, her hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Did Jesus' coming result in worldwide peace? No. I mean, think of the wars of religion that were fought in his name. Think of the Crusades. Didn't Jesus himself say, do not think I came to bring peace to the earth? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. But think about it. How could there be peace between nations when those people in those nations are still at war against God? War and strife is caused by sin. How can the Messiah bring about genuine peace if the hearts of the people are still filled with hatred? Jesus came the first time to bring peace between man and God by reconciling sinners to God through the cross of Christ. He will come the second time to bring peace between the nations. Here's a fifth reason they get he must influence the entire world to acknowledge and serve the one true God. Isaiah 11.9 says this, When the Messiah comes, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Has Jesus accomplished that? I don't know. It seems like he started the process, hasn't he? 
How many people in the world claim to be followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Mm, 2.6 billion. Now certainly not all of them are true worshipers of God, but who brought that knowledge of the God of Israel to the nations? Was it the Jews? No, it was Christians, as they sent out missionaries across the globe. Jews don't send out missionaries. They're not looking to convert others. They just want to be left alone. But I think the Jewish apologists are right when they say this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled because it's speaking of the time and what will happen after Jesus returns to begin to reign on the earth. Now, one of the Jewish apologists I listened to many times, Rabbi Tobia Singer, who works with a group called Outreach Judaism, he argues that the Christians invented the idea of the second coming and in so doing, we're actually giving away the fact that Jesus was a failed Messiah because he did not accomplish these things. That's why he has to come back. Well, that's not true. Jesus accomplished the most important prophecy about him, found in Isaiah 53, which is that he would be rejected by his people and as a result would offer himself up as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. But rather than that being a tragedy, this was part of God's plan. For as it says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death if he would render himself a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many as he bears their iniquity. You see, the Messiah, as a suffering servant, was so different than the idea of a Messiah as an exalted conquering king that the Jews said, well, there's just two Messiahs. There's one, the Messiah, son of Joseph, and another one, Messiah, the son of David. No, they're wrong. There's not two Messiahs. There's one Messiah who comes the first time as a suffering servant and comes the second time as a conquering king. And folks, listen, it's not just enough to believe that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. You have to believe that he's the very son of God. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, meaning I am God, you will die in your sins. He said, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. In Psalm 2, God the Father is speaking to the Messiah, says this, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath will soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. What matters is not whether you're connected to King David, but whether you're connected to David's greater son, the Messiah. And that connection comes not through our genes, but through faith. Let me ask you a question. Have you put your faith in Christ? I'm not asking, do you know him? I'm not asking, do you agree with it? I'm asking, have you placed your faith in him? There's a lady I knew. She was led to the Lord by a man. And uh, saw him years later and started talking to him and found out that he had walked away from his faith, which was just heartbreaking for her. But when he was talking to her, he said, you know, my problem was that I was reformed, but I was never transformed. Is that true for some of you? You're reformed and outward actions in your life possibly cleaned up a little bit, but your heart's never been transformed. 
and still don't know the Lord. Ask him for a new heart, a heart that believes. Let's pray. Our Father and God, this is kind of a whirlwind tour over the scripture, but this theme of your son as the king is found both in the Old and the New Testament. We know that the scripture says that he's going to come back and he's going to defeat the Antichrist. It says because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, Father, we look forward to the day when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom on earth. We know that we're already part of that kingdom by faith, but someday he's going to rule from Jerusalem and his rule is going to last forever and we're going to be part of it. So bless us. Keep us thinking about the great things that you have in store for us in the future and then make us to be faithful so we're ready for that day. Bless us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.